So, hey guys, good morning. Was it still raining uh, when you came in? Man, I am tired of the rain. I'm tired of complaining about the rain too. Just, uh, just to say it, I, I typically am not one that complains very much about the weather, but man, uh, our yard is just, you can't walk anywhere in it. It's just, uh, it's just quite a mess. And I know that in July, we're going to wish it would rain more and all that. I get it, but I'm tired of it right now. We, uh, we need a break. Uh, anyway, it's good to see you guys. And if, uh, if you haven't already, find your worship bullets and look inside of there. Take out your message notes. And uh, if you're going to follow along with me in your own Bible, today I'm going to be teaching from Nehemiah chapter 4. And we're actually going to be wrapping up a message that we started last week. We're talking about overcoming what? Opposition. Last week, we talked about how the opposition comes against us. And, and, and here's the idea. If you're building or rebuilding anything that matters, if you're doing anything that the Lord calls you to do, like for Nehemiah and the, the people of Israel or the, 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 the Jews, they wouldn't necessarily be called the people of Israel at this point. Uh, like they're called to rebuild the wall. When God calls you to do anything important, you will face opposition. There's always gonna be an enemy that doesn't want you to finish the important work, whatever the work may be. So last week we talked about how the opposition comes against us that mostly uses like ridicule and rumors and gossip and those sorts of things. And what it does, along with just the work of building or rebuilding, the, the ridiculers, the opposition, can just get you to the point where you're fatigued, you know, just good old-fashioned tired and worn out. And then it causes fear. And at some point, it just makes you want to quit. Today, our focus is going to be on how do we overcome the opposition? How do we meet it? How do we do battle, if you will, um, against the opposition? Now, in your notes, it shows, I think, Nehemiah chapter 4, maybe 13 to 23, something like that. I'm going to actually go back and pick up the whole chapter. I'm going to go back to the very beginning because that's what really gives this context. And so I want you to hear it from the very beginning. And then I have four, five maybe six lessons to give you on overcoming opposition, just depending on how much time we have. All right, still with me? If you're still with me, I hadn't finished. You guys are not Baptist, I can tell you that right now. And number one, you're too willing to talk out loud. You're not Pentecostal because you would wait on me to finish. Um, if you're with me, say Amen. All right, let's do this thing. Nehemiah chapter four. When Sanballat, say Sanballat, just to say you've said it today. When Sanballat heard that we were rebuilding the wall and we refers to Nehemiah and the people. This is probably almost verbatim out of Nehemiah's own journal, his rebuilding journal. When Sambalay heard that we were rebuilding the wall, he became angry and was greatly incensed. He ridiculed the Jews and in the presence of his associates, because you know bullies always have associates, right? In the presence of his associates and the army of Samaria, which this guy is the governor of Samaria, he said, Who are those feeble Jews 
And what do they think they're doing? It's, uh, it's almost a way of saying, um, who do these weak people think they are? This is the ridicule, right? Uh, who do they, they think they are? They're, they're feeble. Will they restore their wall? Like, are they really going to do it this time? Because we've heard them, you know, we've heard this before. They're going to rebuild the wall. They're going to protect themselves so they can really worship their God. Yada, yada, yada. We're sick of hearing it, whatever. Are they really going to do it this time? What he's doing is he's reminding them of their failures. You guys have tried this before and it didn't work then. Will they restore their wall? Will they offer sacrifices? See, what Sambale knows is that with that wall being torn down, with it still being in ruins, the people are not free to worship their God like normal or like God wants them to be able to worship. Oh, so uh, they're going to get all religious now. And I'll bet you've uh, probably heard the opposition say something similar to you, you know, when you're going you're, you're gonna to get back into church. You're going to start doing things God's way. That's when people will say, oh, so you're a goody two-shoes now. Oh, now you're going to go to church. Now, now you're going to start, arguing. oh, okay, it's sarcast, uh, sarcasm. Will they finish in a day? Snicker, not Snickers bar. I'd like to have one right now, (laughs) but Snicker. Will they finish in a day? Can they bring the stones back to life from those heaps of rubble burned as they are? There are are burn piles everywhere in Jerusalem, all around the city walls. Um, everywhere these walls have been torn down. And these are, these are probably limestone blocks. And so when they're, when they're heated up, when they're burned as they are, they're no longer good for building. They just sort of disintegrate. They, they fall apart. These people don't even have what they need to rebuild. Who do you think you are? Tobiah the Ammonite, because you know, bullies always got the little bully there with him. You got the the big dog, so to speak, and then the little yapper right behind him. Tobiah the Ammonite, who was at his side, see what I mean? He's the little yapper back there. What are they building? Even a fox climbing on it would break down their wall of stones. So one of the things that you're going to see in this chapter is a passage of time. They rebuild the wall in about 60 days, not to give away the story, but to give away the story. They rebuilt it in about 60 days. And what you see in this chapter is not something that happens just over a few minutes or even a day or so. There's a passage of time here because right now when, when Tobiah and the enemies, when they look at what the people have done so far, they're saying that's not impressive at all. And I'm pretty sure that uh, Tobiah is looking at the part where the priests have been laying the blocks there. Look at that thing. There's not a straight line. There's not a straight course of block anywhere. And, and look at it. You know, it's just this little thing. Who's that going to keep out? And then Nehemiah prays. And if you were not here last week, let me just warn you, this is an honest, raw prayer. You have to hear it that way. 
hear it now and then we'll unpack it later. Nehemiah prays, hear us, our God, for we are despised. Ever felt like your enemies despised you? Um, that pronoun there, we, it's interesting because it, it makes you wonder, who does Nehemiah mean by we? You know, obviously it means me and the people, but is that all? I don't think so. I think we means me, Nehemiah, the people, but God, you're included in this. They despise you. In fact, truth be known, they hated the people because they hated their God. And, and all of these years, decades and decades and decades, the people have been living in disgrace because they live in an unprotected city. And men like uh, Sambalay and Tobiah and the people of Ashdod, which come up in a few minutes, and uh, the Arabs, just a group of Arab people that are listed there, the, the folks who were living in about 450 BC, they knew who those, were, those people were exactly. But he says, all of those people... They've, they've been coming in here and raping us and taking our women and taking our children. They've sold us as slaves and they hate us. That's obvious, but God, they hate you. It's almost, it's almost like he's saying, Lord, you see what they're doing to us. If that's not enough to make them stop it, then let me bring you into this and just know that they... They hate you too. And maybe he thinks in the, in the back of his mind, that'll, and that'll, that'll get God to just go off on these people. That, that'll be the difference. That'll be enough. Turn their insults back on their own heads. Notice that Nehemiah didn't do that. He's saying, God, I'm asking you to do it. Give them over as plunder in a land of captivity. You know why those words sting? Those words sting because that's exactly what had happened to the Jewish people. In 586 BC, when Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians came into Jerusalem, they sacked the place and they took the people back as plunder. Slaves. Some they kept, some they sold. He's saying, Lord, our enemies out there ridiculing us, give them a taste of what we've had to eat for the last 140 years. Put it back on them. Show them what it's like to live in the environment that we've lived in for the last 140 years. Do not cover up their guilt. And trust me, Nehemiah is not the only man of God to ever pray something like that. But this is his raw emotions. Do not cover up their guilt. God, kill my boss. God, kill this neighbor I hate. Go to hell. It's the same thing. 
Do not cover up their guilt or blot out their sins from your sight, for they have thrown insults in the face of the builders. In verse 6, we, we change gears somewhat. Verse 6 says, So we rebuilt the wall till it reached half of its height, for the people worked with all their heart. So remember, just a while ago, maybe a few days ago, maybe a few weeks ago, the wall was like this. Now the wall's at half its height. Um, if you go with me to the Holy Land in September, September 3rd through the 12th, I'll show you ruins of Nehemiah's wall. In some places, it was high as 20 feet. So, so now it's so small that a fox could get up there on it. It was so weak, or at least it looked so weak, that the fox could knock it down. Now this thing is to half its height. Now they have a serious wall. But when Sambalay, Tobiah, the Arabs, the Ammonites, and the people of Ashdod heard that the repairs to Jerusalem's walls had gone ahead and that the gaps were being closed, they were very angry. Notice how the group has grown. It's moved from being two or three men to a full-blown conspiracy. Now it's not just Tobiah, the Amorite, it's Tobiah and all the Amorites. Now it's the people of Ashdod. Now it's this group of unnamed Arabs. Now it's just clans of people that are against all this. And, and what's happened is that they see, hey, you know what? This wall might actually get rebuilt. The gaps in the walls are being repaired. So now the, now the tunnels that they've used to get in to the city, the, the, the little secret passageways that goes through the, the rubble piles, those are being closed up. And so all of these people who have taken advantage of God's people through the years, that have come, come in to take them as slaves, that have come in to steal their food, to come in and rob from their temple, that have, have come in to, to prevent them from worshiping their God, they're mad because now they see that this might just happen. So what do they do? Do they just walk away? Does the opposition just walk away and say, hey, look, we gave it a good try? But apparently these guys are not going to quit like they have in the past. No. And your opposition will not quit either. The opposition usually doesn't go away. The opposition usually just grows. It gets bigger. Verse 8. They all plotted together. They're working together. You know, it's... Um, the enemy of my enemy is my friend. All these groups, they hated each other. And by the way, anybody that has the code to the, um, the AC in here, if you get that AC going just a little bit, I'll give you a bottle of water after the service is over. It's, it's hot in here, and I see other people fanning themselves. They're going to start going to sleep in a little bit, guys. So you'll turn the air down, get it a little bit cooler in here. They plotted together to come and fight against Jerusalem and stir up trouble against it. It doesn't even say that their goal is to just go in. They're going to destroy them. It just says we're going to go in and stir up confusion. We're just going to, we're going to go in and mess them up enough to just make them stop all of this mess. And then we can tear down the rest of the wall later. Verse 9. 
but we prayed to our God and posted a guard day and night to meet this threat. Remember that. We're going to come back to it later. But remember that. That's an important statement. But we prayed. And notice, notice now it's not Nehemiah only who's praying. Nehemiah prays throughout the, the book. There's 13 chapters here. And I think there are 16, maybe 18 examples of Nehemiah praying. Up to this point, there are four or five already in just these four chapters. But now it's not, not only Nehemiah praying, but all of the people prayed. But we prayed to our God and we posted a guard day and night, 24 hours a day to meet this threat. Meanwhile, meanwhile means there's a scene change. Meanwhile, the people in Judah said, the strength of the laborers is giving out. And there's so much rubble that we cannot rebuild the wall. You know, last week we used the analogy of um, the, uh, the, the football analogy because I know NFL, the NFL season is over, but when the Masters kicks up, I'll get into golf. I, I'll enjoy the world, uh, not the world 600, but the Daytona 500 last week. I, I like NASCAR, but... It, it'll take me till about June to get over NFL. And <laughs> Israel is broken down into 12 tribes. The, the oldest son was Judah. So Judah here is not just a man named Judah. It's, it's that tribe. It's the biggest tribe. It's the toughest tribe. So think about this on a, on a football team. You know, the, it's halftime. They've got the wall rebuilt to half its height. So it's halftime. They're in the locker room. So the, uh, the coach has special teams guys and, you know, other regular players that come from all, all the 12 tribes. But the offensive line and the defensive line, the big guys in the trenches, they all come from Judah. And so Nehemiah is a leader. He, he's, he's thinking, okay, I, I know people are getting tired and um, they're having to deal with these conflicts and stuff like that. But no matter what happens, I know I can depend on my offense and my defensive line. And I can depend on the guys in the trench. But now the guys in the trenches are going, coach, we can't win. We, we, we can't do it. This is too big. The other team is just too tough. Think about how defeating or how hurtful that must have been for Nehemiah to hear. Thank you for the water. This is just too much. I don't think we can do it, coach. Then it gets worse in verse 11. Also, our enemy said, before they know it or see us, we will be right there among them. Oh, they've been closing up the gaps in the wall. Well, we still know where some gaps are. They're not all closed in. We know where the low spots are. We know how to get in there. And before they even know what's happened, we'll be right there among them and we will kill them and put an end to all this nonsense, put an end to this work. Then I won't say it gets worse still, but it, but it is worse. Then the Jews who lived near them, these are the people that live outside of the city walls. They live close enough to the enemy to hear the secret plot. 
And apparently it's not that secret anymore because they're saying it loud enough to be heard. When the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, or I'm sorry, then the Jews who lived near them came and told us 10 times over, wherever you turn, they will attack us. That's the propaganda part in all this. That, that, that's what the enemy's been saying. Hey, you, you rabbit ears. You know what rabbit ears are, right? Big ears. Hey, to all of you Jews out there listening, you think you're, you're spying on us. You think you're being secretive. Let me just tell you, we're going to attack you at every point in that wall. We're going to be all over you. Nothing you can do about it. And so these people would come back to him and they would tell Nehemiah what they heard and they would tell it to him over and over and over again. So what do you think Nehemiah did? We well, didn't give up. He didn't say, well, you know, guys, we, we gave this a good go. Done all I can do. But I mean, if we can't depend on our linemen down here, we can forget running the ball. If nobody's pushing and pulling, there's not going to be any running lanes. There's not going to be anybody to throw the ball to. Cam's going to be on his back all day. <laughs> now, he didn't say that at all. Verse 13 says, therefore. Whenever you see therefore in the Bible, you want to know what's therefore. Therefore means what we're about to hear is based on what we just heard. Therefore, or based on that, I stationed some of the people behind the lowest points of the wall at the exposed places, posting them by families with their swords, spears, and bows. So they're grouped by families, and now they're weaponized. Um, I love this. Verse 14, after I looked things over, I stood up, and said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, everybody, called the leaders together, tribal council right here, all the tribal leaders, all the noblemen, all the builders meeting right here. And it's like a, it's like a Braveheart moment. It's like a William Wallace kind of speech. Don't be afraid of them. And, and that's not easy. Because these guys are ferocious. The, the guys out there making threats, Sambalay, Tobiah, the Arabs, the people of Ashdod, these are all hardened warriors. They're out there with their faces painted up. They're out there beating on their shields. They're out there chanting they're out there plotting and preparing. And William Wallace, Mel Gibson says, don't be afraid of them. Remember the Lord who is great and awesome and fight for your families, your sons and your daughters, your wives and your homes. That's Braveheart. When our enemies heard that we were aware of their plot and that God had frustrated it. So now there's not going to be a surprise attack. That's what's been frustrated. We know about their plan. We all return to the wall, each to our own work. But you know they're looking over their shoulder. 
right? I mean, we're not talking about machines here. We're talking about human beings. Of course, they're looking over their shoulder. They don't, they don't know what's going to happen next. Verse 16, from that day on, half of my men did the work while the other half were equipped with spears, shields, bows, and armor. The officers posted themselves behind all the people of Judah, the linebackers. Thomas Davis and the boys are backing up there, back there backing up the, the line here. They got, got behind the people of Judah who were building the wall. Those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. I just think that's awesome. And I'm not expecting all the men to say amen right here, but I think it's worthy of at least a grunt. Uh, those who carried materials did their work with one hand and held a weapon in the other. And each of the builders wore his sword at his side as he worked. But the man who sounded the trumpet stayed with me, the shofar. I should have brought a, my shofar in. Then I said to the nobles, the officials, and the rest of the people, the work is extensive and it's spread out. And we are widely separated from each other along the wall. Wherever you are or wherever you hear the sound of the trumpet, join us there. Our God will fight for us. So he set up like battle time protocols. I mean, you, you see this all throughout, you know, the great wars. The bugler, the drummers. It's all about when to go. It's all about giving orders. It's, it's, this is just genius. Because these guys are looking over their shoulder. He says, hey, hey, look, you don't have to be looking over your shoulder. Just be listening for the shofar. When you hear the trumpet blow, and by the way, the bugler is going to be right here with me. When you hear that you go blow when you hear the trumpet sound. You go to wherever that is. And if the enemy's coming off over the wall, we'll all fight them together right there. It's an alarm system. Our God will fight for us. My message is not about this, but I'm going to say it anyway. I think men especially need to grab a hold of this image of what it means to be a man of God. Nehemiah is a civil engineer, okay? but he seems like a pretty tough guy to me as well. And there's something to be said for doing God's work with one hand and being armed with the other. And by the way, that's not just an Old Testament metaphor. That carries over into the New Testament. 
when we talk about the armor of God and how we use the, the Holy Spirit and the word of God as our sword and we have a shield and we're girded in the truth of God. All of these are about fighting against our opposition. Jesus certainly recognized we had an enemy. One of the great verses in the scriptures is John 10, 10, where he says, the thief who is Satan has come to steal, kill, and destroy, but I've come that you might have life. He knew that we had an enemy. He knows that we have an enemy. He knows we face opposition, and it's the devil. And I think we, I think we need to help men have a stronger image of what it means to be a man of God. That being a person of God is not just something for women and children. You can be a man of God and be strong. You should be strong. Listen, one of the, one of the greatest things we've ever done for the devil is we have made a cartoon character out of him. We put him in a jumpsuit, give him a pitchfork, give him some Angus Young horns up on the top of his forehead. And so we don't think anything about it. One of the greatest disservices we've ever done to Jesus is is carrying over art from the age of enlightenment when European painters began to paint Jesus as though he looks like a woman. He looks weak. Listen, I'm not trying to tell you that Jesus wore wife beater t-shirts and crushed beer cans on his forehead. But Jesus was a construction worker. He was a finished carpenter. Jesus didn't have nice smooth hands. He had rough hands. Jesus hung out in places at times where there were soldiers And there were people that come from the the bottom end of society, so to speak. And there's never an example of them saying, hey, you're not tough enough to be in our club. We need strong men, strong men of God who will lead their families toward God, not away from God. Who put the priorities of their lives right and and what's important verse 21 so we continued the work with half the men holding spears from the first light of dawn until the stars came out so we worked in shifts at that time I said to the people have every man and his helper stay inside of Jerusalem at night no more going outside of the city If they kill us, they're going to kill us all at one time. They're not going to pick us off one at a time. Keep them in the city at night so that they can serve as guards by day and workers, uh, guards by night and workers by day. And I love Nehemiah because he is a leader's leader. Neither I nor my brothers nor my men nor the guards with me took off their clothes And I'm sure this was a stinky mess after 60 days, but each had his own weapon even when we went out to water. We were always prepared for the enemy. We were always ready to fight. 
So let me give you some lessons here for how to face opposition. The first one is expect it. Expect opposition. Listen, you are going, you're going to have opposition as a leader, and there's just no way to avoid it. If you're doing anything that matters, you are going to face opposition. That, that's true if you lead a classroom or a congregation. That's true if you um, run a presidential administration or you run a little league team. You're going to face opposition. There's just no way around it. You have to expect it. You have to plan for it. You have to be prepared for it. You are going to face opposition. And the opposition's not just going to hit you once and go away. The opposition's going to hit you. And if that doesn't work, it'll get bigger and stronger. It'll bring friends. It'll grow. There's always going to be opposition. You just have to get comfortable with that. You just have to get comfortable with the fact that there's going to be oppositions. Some seasons will just be a little better than others. Here's the second lesson. Focus on God, not on the opposition. When the opposition comes against you, it's hard. Listen, it's hard not to take your eyes off God. It's so much easier and it just seems to come natural to us to, to focus on the enemy. But that's not what you do. When the opposition comes, you keep your focus on God. How do you do that? You pray. You pray. Not just once, but you, you pray often. See, all of Nehemiah's prayers are not, you know, down on one knee. Dear Lord, just want to pray to you for the next half an hour, 45 minutes here and ask. There are times where you pray like that. There are times when you pray for hours. But then there are those moments, like I'm sure he's had around this wall, and like when he's before Artaxerxes, the king of Persia, who wants to know what's the matter. There are those whisper prayers. There are those, there are those just one-sentence prayers like, God, please help me through this. God, please don't let me cave here. God, please fight for me. Please give me strength. Sometimes it's, it's a prayer like that. But you pray. You stay focused on God. Listen, take, take this from someone who's, who's made this mistake. You don't come down off the wall. You don't leave the work at the wall for every complainer, critic, and crybaby. If you do, you'll waste all your time. You'll waste all of your energy on the wrong things. Now listen to me. Listen to me. If you're a leader, hear me what I'm about here. Make sure you hear everything that I'm saying. That does not mean that when people have concerns about what's going on, that you don't address those concerns with them. I'm not talking about the people on the inside and people on the inside who have honest questions or honest concerns about rebuilding the wall or whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is you're leading, the people on the inside, when they have concerns, you spend time with them. That's what Nehemiah does. Nehemiah doesn't dismiss his own people. He dismisses the opposition. He ignores the opposition. You cannot be an arrogant, narcissistic leader who just 
when someone comes to them and they have a concern, they just say, hey, I don't have time for this. I've got more important things to do. The people inside of the organization you lead, that is your business. But with the critics, the complainers, the crybabies, th- those are rarely, if ever, I can't, think of, uh, I can't think of an example in my own ministry or in my own life or my own leadership life where people who were really the opposition just came in and said, hey, listen, I really would like to just talk to you about it. I have some concerns. The opposition, the crybabies, complainers, the critiques, not those who want to just give you some constructive, constructive feedback, the critics, they're on the outside. They get a group. They start yelling things at you. You can tell the difference. Here's what happens when you, when you, when you pay too much attention to the opposition. It skews your thinking. What I mean by that is you start, you become a reactionary leader. Oh my gosh, somebody who doesn't like me and doesn't come to the church, doesn't, they don't want me to preach the Bible anymore. Okay, well, let me rethink this then. Mm-mm. Mm-mm. Um, focusing on the opposition will, will cause you to make decisions out of fear. It skews your thinking. But when you focus on God, that gives you clarity. And especially in the area of making the next steps. And, and listen, making the right next steps So when the opposition comes against you, don't, don't focus on the opposition. Focus on God. Number three, be prayerful and practical. I love this one. There's no denying that Nehemiah has a pattern of prayer, right? We've talked about this already. but he also took practical next steps. They prayed that God would help them. And then Nehemiah armed them. Now, wait a minute. That kind of seems to go, those those are competing things because if you're believing that God's gonna protect you, why do you go put on armor? Why Why do you arm yourselves? All I know is that if you look through the scriptures, at least from Genesis 12 to Acts 26, everywhere God tells people to trust him, to pray to him, to worship him, to depend on him, he also gives them next steps of faith to take. God is sovereign. That's what this story tells us. God is in control, rebuilding the wall. That's all God's idea. Nehemiah finding favor with the Persian king Artaxerxes and him giving them a blank purchase order number and his own personal uh, 
gold card. All of that is the providence of God. All of that is the sovereignty of God. But what you and I do matters as well. Like if you're trying to rebuild your marriage, praying about it is not enough. Somebody's going to have to change some behaviors, and it can't always be the other person only. You, you're not ever going to be able to pray yourself into skinny jeans. Amen. Amen. I thought maybe some ladies might grunt on that one. I don't know. <laughs> I've tried. You can't. Doesn't work. You have to change some behaviors. Praying is important, most important. But you're not going to pray yourself out of debt. You've got to put together a budget. You've got to put together some processes. You've got to make a decision and then make plans and organize around honoring God with your finances. Have you ever heard of a guy named Oliver Cromwell? Yeah, he was the Lord Protector over the Commonwealth of England. Um, Let's see, England, Scotland, and Ireland. 1649, after the Irish Rebellion, he led the English into Ireland to, to, you know, conquer them. And he said, trust in God, my boys, but keep your powder dry. We're trusting in God. We're going to load up these guns. We're going to make sure that when that enemy comes over the wall, we got something to shoot him with. Number four, learn your weaknesses and make adjustments. Learn your weaknesses and make adjustments. I want you to try to get your mind around this, okay? Try to get your mind around what I'm about to say. If you will change your attitude toward opposition, you will find that the opposition can help you more than it can hurt you. What I mean about changing your perspective about opposition, stop praying that there will be no opposition. That's not going to happen. Okay, look, God can do anything he wants to, but I can't find examples of that in scriptures or in my own personal life where God just takes away the opposition. I think the opposition is there because it drives us back into him. The opposition is not gonna go away. So stop praying that way. Instead, let the opposition help you. And here's how this works. The opposition will show you your weaknesses. Your opposition will show you where you're vulnerable. The opposition will show you where the low points are in your walls or where the tunnels are or where the weak spots are in the walls. Your character. They'll expose the things that need to be fixed in your life. That doesn't mean you enjoy being ridiculed. 
But when you are being ridiculed, think about that for just a minute. Why are they really ridiculing you about that thing, that issue? Why, why, why are they using that? How, how do they know that gets under your skin? Sanballat and Tobiah, what, what did they do? They brought up their past. You guys, have, you guys have tried this before and you failed. You're a bunch of quitters. Quit. Quit, quit, quit. That's worked in the past. They knew there was a vulnerability there. In the walls, Sanballat and Tobiah, they, they would go around the walls and look for the weak spots. They knew where the weak spots were. They had been going in and out of those weak spots in the low places for years. And while Nehemiah didn't like what they were doing or what they were saying, he took that information and he put reinforcements wherever the wall was weak. He, he put reinforcements where the wall was low. He had his men and women, because this is not just men building or fighting, ladies. And they, they fixed the weak spots. They made adjustments. You need to do the same thing. When the opposition comes at you, why is the opposition coming at you with pornography? Because it's a weak spot. And the opposition doesn't really even have to know what you're thinking. The opposition knows you. Where are you vulnerable? Listen, if you're a leader and you have people from time to time, they quit on you or from time to time you have to let them go. There's usually some, somewhere in there an opportunity for that person to voice their opinion back to you. Sometimes that's just to deflect what's wrong with them back onto you. But sometimes they have a valid point. And that might not change what's happening here. It might not change that that person is leaving or that, that person's walking away or they have to leave. But what it may do is help you see where there are some weaknesses in your leadership life in your character. So when the weaknesses are exposed, learn from them. I have one more. You guys, let me give you one more. Remember the Lord. Remember the Lord. That, that's what Nehemiah tells the people when he gives that brave heart speech. Remember the Lord. Remember that he will fight for us. Remember what we're fighting for. This is for your wives. This is for your children. Fight for your homes. Remember the Lord. Uh, I didn't go into the military. I, I, I wish here at age 50 I had gone into the military, but I didn't. But I've always admired the military. A tremendous amount of respect for them. And I love, I love history, but I love certain things of history better than others. Anything that's world history, especially as it's related to church history, which is a lot of history. 
I enjoy that. I enjoy Roman history. I enjoy Civil War history. United, the United States, our own Civil War. And uh, World War II. And it's, it's interesting. If you think back to some of the great battle cries of some of the greatest wars, at least the wars we've been involved in, the, the battle cry almost always begins with remember. In the Spanish-American War, it was remember the Maine, M-A-I-N-E. There was a ship, and you can go Google it if you're really interested in that. But remember the Maine. In World War II, it was what? Remember Pearl Harbor. And of course, the most famous one is from the uh, Texas War of Independence. And remember the Alamo. Yeah. If you, if you think about what that statement means, remember back to a time when we got our rear ends kicked and let's use that as motivation to go and kick their behinds. Rear ends, behinds, is that okay to say in church? But it's a looking back. It's a looking back on a defeat and using that to, you know, go into battle. Nehemiah does not do that here. He says, remember the Lord. Remember your wives. Remember your children. Remember the kids you grew up with. Remember the Lord. Remember your homes. Remember each other. He's saying, remember the future, not the past. Remember what we're fighting for. We're fighting for a future. Don't let the opposition take us off this wall. Don't let the opposition stop us right here. Let's keep going forward. Remember all that is at stake. And I challenge you with that. Remember the Lord. When the opposition comes against you, you have to remember the Lord. When you're worn out, you're sick of the ridicule, you don't want to pray anymore, and you can't help but to see the enemy, remember the Lord. When you want to stop building that God-honoring marriage, when you want to just quit on God, remember the Lord. Remember what's at stake. I was telling Karen last night, you know the story of Esau and Jacob in the Old Testament? They're brothers, twin brothers. Esau's the oldest. By birthright, he gets all of daddy's land and the promise, the inheritance, um, everything that God is doing in the life of their father, Abraham. It's going to all run through Judah. Judah's daddy's favorite son. Jacob is mama's favorite son. And mom and Jacob work up a plot to steal Esau's birthright from Esau and his father, Isaac. Esau comes in one day, he's been hunting all day. Maybe not just all day, but he's been out hunting and he's tired and hungry. Any hunters in the room? Yeah. Do you get hungry when you're hunting? I'm not a, hung, I'm not a hunter, but I play golf. Does that count? 
I fish in ponds. Does that count? All right. So he comes in and he's, he's hungry, he's tired. Jacob's making his favorite red stew. And Esau says, man, I'd give about anything for some of that. Yeah, well, just trade me your birthright. Sign this document here and you can have the whole pot of soup. At that moment, you just want to rush in and say, Esau, wait a minute. Wait a minute. Let me, l- let me help you see what this is going to cost you. This is going to cost you a relationship with your brother. It's going to split your family. You're going to give up all the lands that you would inherit. Everything that God has promised to Abraham, your granddaddy, and Isaac, your daddy, that's going to run right through you. All that's going to go away. It's going to go away for you and your kids and your grandkids. And they're always going to hear the story about how their daddy pushed their inheritance across the table. Not a poker table, although that's happened a lot. But he pushed that inheritance across the dinner table and traded it all for a pot of stew. Oh, and, and don't, remember, don't, don't forget this. One day there's going to come... You're going to have a cousin, or you're going to have a son. You'll be his great, 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 great granddaddy. His name will be called Yeshua, Jesus. He's the Messiah. And then in the sacred scriptures, in the gospel of Matthew, when Matthew gives the lineage When he names off the fathers of Jesus, your name is going to be in that document from now on. That's how you're going to be remembered and honored unless you eat that stew. You eat that stew and all that goes away. But the only thing that Esau could think about was his stomach. And it all but destroyed him. When the opposition is against you, when it's temptation or whatever it is, remember the Lord and remember what's at stake. And don't quit. Don't give up. Let's stand together and pray. Should I preach this same message in the next service or should I go write something different? Is this helpful? Because it's been really helpful for me this week. So I hope it helps you as well. Let me pray for us and then you can be dismissed. Lord, I pray right now for the things in our lives that you've called us to, that we're building or rebuilding. Lord, that couple that's, that's married and it's early in their marriage. And so they're trying to build something from scratch that honors you. God, when the opposition comes against them. I pray that they'll focus on you and depend on you, that they'll trust you. They'll make the right decisions. God, I pray for that couple that's been married for years, maybe 10 years or 25 years or even more. They're trying to rebuild their marriage into something that's godly, that honors you. 
when the opposition comes, I pray that they would, they would withstand it, that they would re- remember you, remember the God who fights for us. And Lord, again, I pray that for whatever it is that we're building. And Lord, I just wanna thank you for being the God who fights for us. Our greatest enemy is Satan. And he doesn't just want us to stop or or slow down our work. He wants to stop us. He wants to stop your work inside of us. But through the cross in an empty tomb, Jesus fought Satan, fought hell and won for us. So Lord, the war, the spiritual war is over. You've won that. But Lord, the battles along the way fight for us. Thank you for loving us and caring for us. We pray in Jesus' great name. And those who agreed said, amen. God bless you. See you next Sunday.